0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
0: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also download the iHeartRadio app and listen to us anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Mr ken williams and he is here to talk about a play that he has coming up in the toronto fringe festival that runs from july 21st to the 31st and so it's a pleasure to have ken on the show to talk about bannock republic ken welcome
2: thanks Dave. it's good to be here
0: uh, we haven't spoken for quite a long time. I mean,
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, I was trying to figure that out. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah, I, I don't remember the last time we actually spoke. It's it's kind of funny because as uh, as I read through the the play Bannock Republic, it, it brings up memories of APTN where we both used to work, and of course your yep. a, your play does in fact mention APTN in it, and has someone that actually <laughs> works there.
2: So <laughs> more memories to be had. Yeah, because I wrote the play soon after I'd left. <laughs> so <laughs> right. there were still some feelings I think I was working out <laughs> in the play.
0: <laughs> and of course, the play seems very timely, doesn't it?
2: Well, it's kind of funny that it is because I wrote it over 10 years ago. Yeah. It's, this, yeah. was, this was produced in 2010 in Saskatoon mm-hmm. and has been produced since. It was actually a nice little surprise um, when I got the call from uh, the Center for Indigenous Theatre, uh, Rose Stella, said, uh, can we do this for our students? And I said, yeah. Oh, nice. That's awesome. Yeah, but please do. <laughs> um, and I thought it was only a student production. I was actually honestly surprised, mm. uh, again, uh, that when I saw the news that I had made it into the Fringe Festival, I was like, because we had negotiated that so long ago yeah. and pre, you know, just as COVID was hitting, yes. um, I kind of had forgotten <laughs> that one part that it might get into the Fringe. And... Uh, I was like, oh, it's in the Fringe. Someone else told me about it. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I went, oh, okay. So that was kind of nice. All
0: right. So for people that that may not be familiar with Bannock Republic, uh, it is a touching and hilarious comedy uh, by... A, Kenneth Williams here, and it's a newly elected chief, Isaac Thunderbird. that is grappling with the death of his wife as he fights to preserve a residential school as memorial to its tragic past.
2: Yeah, it was it, it actually is, it came from a real uh, there, there's a lot of things that are that really did happen that I'm sort of touching on in the play. And one of them was that the uh, the what was then called the Department of Indian Affairs um, uh, was 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 giving money to bands to destroy the residential schools on their mm. on their territory, mm. um, and then uh, and it was a there was a little bit of a discussion I felt uh, going on in communities about uh, should we get rid of them, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people said yes, get rid of them, just, oh, yeah. just level them, just yep. get rid of them, absolutely. And but there's other people saying, well, if we get rid of them, the, the evidence that was there is gone with them. And there's no sort of that sense that we need to be, it's painful and everything else, but we need to hang on to them. Maybe we should hang on to them a little bit as a memorial or at least, you know, make sure that the stories that occurred there are not forgotten. And when I wrote this play, you know, the, the apology was, you know, just barely, it was still fresh. Mm. Um, the TRC uh, was still sort of finding its feet and, you know, beginning its research and, th- and what have you. And uh, the, the, But none of the stories were resonating with Canadians, Mm. if you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, when you say it's timely, it's kind of like because now of the announcements that came out of Kamloops, the announcements that came out of Cowessess in Saskatchewan, and, of course, another one in B.C. And my own reserve is now involved in in doing ground-penetrating radar to look for, you know, uh, missing or unmarked graves. Um, It's now sort of like it's now finally landing in the consciousness of the rest of Canada. Yes. But these were stories we knew. Like yep. This is nothing new for us. Sure. We, we we already had these stories. We already knew these stories. And for me, I was trying to find a way to not just tell those specific stories, but to tell sort of like the overall story of residential school so that Canadians don't forget or at least right. are not allowed to wash it away.
0: Right. And of course, the, the other thing that your play does, um, it, it goes beyond the... The story of the residential school, it it brings us into the uh, the the intergenerational trauma uh, of that, and we see that in the characters that are playing out in front of us.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because you have you have the two cousins, uh Jacob and Isaac Thunder Thunderchild, who were from they're from Thunderstick. They're that this is a reunion uh, ten years after. Mm-hmm. Um, there, uh, uh, Jacob is the one now working for Aptn.
0: Yep. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, and Isaac, who he, he used to be a photojournalist, is now the chief. Yes. Um, and then I introduced a third character named Destiny. Yep. Who is a First Nations woman who is a third party manager. Yeah. This is one of those things that uh, we deal with in, in in First Nations communities is the whole issue of when the government takes over the finances, and the way that plays out in sort of the mainstream consciousness is that oh the reserve screwed up. The chiefs don't know what they're doing or they're corrupt or, or whatever. Yep, yep. And therefore it makes sense that the government comes in. And what people don't understand about third party management is that no band that has ever been put into third party management has ever come out of it. <laughs> like this, this institute to come in these accountants and whomever are brought in to save the finances of the reserve somehow managed to keep the reserve in third party. And there's no mechanism to remove them or, to say, Hey, are you doing a good job at this or not? And you know, the little thing insight in there that, that again, I'm talking, you know, but the audience is mostly for first nations people. Mm. Um, the, the other part of that mechanism is the the third party managers are paid from the finances of the band and they don't have to report that to anybody, right. not even the federal government. Yeah. So it's, right. it's kind of like, that's another thing I was trying to process and how do I dramatize mm some of these really arcane and and contradictory rules that chiefs and band councils have to face mm-hmm. you know but make it a dramatic how do you how do you dramatize that yes. right so yes. that was another kind of challenge yes. and issue in the play as yes. well so
0: and from what you yeah. just described there why would anyone uh, in in that position that is brought into third party management uh, of uh, the community. Why would you want to get them out of third party management? Yeah,
2: <laughs> no, there's, there's no reason to, right? It's a cash cow.
0: <laughs> right, what else can we
2: do but laugh?
0: Speaking of laughing, that you do bring the, the some very uh, sharp wit and and humor within the play uh you don't pull any punches either i mean you uh you know that humor is biting um on, on all fronts uh you know within the characters within the the community you point at everybody uh you, you don't uh you don't hold back
2: well I, I you know it's one of those things that um there's there's some elements i think where i stretch the truth a little bit <laughs> just, yeah. just for the sake of a joke or whatever sure but yeah it's one of the aspects of the play is let's, we can't give up hope. We have to, you know, we got to rely, we, we can't give up hope that our, our ancestors had. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We can't give that up. Yeah. But it's, it's, at the same time uh, that means we have to understand, we have to like really look at honestly what's in front of us. Like what are we really dealing with and what parts do we actually do? You know, the old, the old legislative phrase used to have contributory negligence. How do we, how are we contributing to our own kind of colonization, how are we mm-hmm. contributing to our own hopelessness? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's, it, and I'm not saying it's easy. That's another thing in the play is that nothing is. There's no. There are no easy answers to right. anything. Right. But th- there are steps that we can start trying to take. And one of them is to stop relying on stereotype that we we ourselves sometimes impose. Like we, the idea of the corrupt chief is something equally embraced by First Nations <laughs> people as it is in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wanted to give chiefs a fair shake and yep. councils a fair shake and, and get, you know, people to understand that there's the rules that Indian affairs had at that time were so onerous and contradictory that even the, uh, the auditor general kept saying why you, you, you trap the, you trap these communities in, in a state of endless bureaucracy mm. that is not of their own creation and not to their benefit. Yes. Um, and, and it's and it's a state and I and I you know as far as I can tell that's a state that still exists.
0: Right. As you mentioned, uh, the apology was fresh at the time. I'm just wondering what what came to you first for the idea of writing this play?
2: There were a lot of things <laughs> happening at that time. Hmm. That, you know, I had just left APTN. Yep. Um, but I was still kind of absorbed in the stories that we were covering. Yes. Um, and in a sense, I wanted to sort of write the story. You know, you remember, you. You know, you know what it's like to be a journalist trying to sort of condense down a very complex issue to be presented, right? <laughs> oh yeah. And with TV, you, you you know, as we're as we're moving it to date, as we're moving it to a, a daily news cycle, mm. you're you're really crunching, yes, and you're you're purposely smoothing out or ignoring a lot of things. Yep. And I didn't want to do that with this play. I wanted to look at the complexity. Mm. So you know, so we're dealing with an apology. We're dealing with uh, the concept that was still, it it still gets debated now, but it was actually completely kind of sort of scoffed at when it came up with the idea of of genocide. Mm. Like to even refer to the residential schools as genocide still gets an argument now, less so, but it still gets an argument. But back then, just to to whisper the word genocide next to residential schools was was almost the ammunition that mainstream commentators needed to sort of dismiss the harm that was done. They said, Oh, it can't be genocide. Canada didn't commit genocide. Don't overstate your pain for political benefit, which is still a thing that we get, we get, you know, uh, you know, you know, what's his hoots. Uh, uh, I I kind of want to spill his name out because, but he just got another, he gave himself another article in in the national post about how, (laughs) <laughs> continual acts of indifference it does not equal je- does not equal evil and i went what <laughs> that, <All right. laughs> that exactly defines evil <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, yes so we still have to face up to people who are deniers yes you know who deny what happened and now you know i've seen that shift in the last few months mm. In people who would never would have considered or understood what residential school harm was until the announcements came, It's something about the unmarked grave that really sort of sort of sort of sort of nailed Canadians right in the head. Mm. You know mm-hmm. that that stung them and made them come to understand what happened. Mm-hmm. So that's that seems like you know you can't. It's like the the, the cover up has been revealed. Yeah. And therefore, right. you know it. The idea of erasing graves, you know, is is something that uh, can't be ignored anymore. So, right. um, the, I think it's kind of it's kind of funny that, that now my play makes now my plays in you <laughs> know my plays a timely play now my plays like you know makes sense to. Produce at this time.
0: You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Kenneth Williams. He is a Cree playwright from the George Gordon First Nation in Saskatchewan, that's Treaty 4 area. And he is the first Indigenous person to earn an MFA in playwriting from the University of Alberta. And uh, his plays have been produced across Canada. They include Care, Café Daughter, Gordon Winter, Thunderstick, Bannock Republic, which is what we're talking about today. And it's a pleasure to have Ken on the show. Ken and I used to actually work together uh, at APTN. And then you moved on. And now you had, I think I always knew you were interested in this kind of thing. What drew you to this this kind of um, writing? What first got you interested
2: It's actually a friend of mine. Um, It it was, uh, I I hate to admit this, but it was actually an act of laziness. Uh, I was trying to, uh, I was, uh, when I was much younger and in my first few years of university, I sort of fancied myself a novelist Mm. and a short story writer. That's where I thought my writing career was going to take me. Mm. Um, And I, uh, that wasn't happening. I was not getting into the creative writing program at the University of Alberta. And a friend of mine said, uh, the drama department offers playwriting, uh, introductory playwriting, and you don't have to know anything about playwriting. You can, you know, just mm. go in and take the course. Mm. And it was a revelation to me because it, even though I had no theater background, right. as a form of writing and and creative storytelling, it really made a lot of sense to me immediately, just intuitively. Mm. Um, and so that that shifted my gaze and my my focus onto being working in drama um and then i managed to like just through enthusiasm and just commitment and hard work and a little bit of conniving i got into the mfa Mm. mfa program and playwriting in in the drama department and it's you know that's a program for people who actually have a lot more experience in theater than i did right but because the faculty knew me so well they said okay we're gonna give him a shot because he's obviously crazy enough to try this, and he's got the he's got the goods to do it um I got my m f a in nineteen ninety two and then this is where another shift happens um there's really not you know I thought okay m f a here we go start sending scripts out to theaters they're automatically going to want to take me because I got that m f a at the end of my name, and that mm-hmm. was a big learning experience there <laughs> that, no that's not automatically going to happen um and had to make a living somehow, and I started with book reviews that for a small native paper that turned into articles for a small native paper, which led to be me becoming an editor of a paper mm. f- based uh, here out of Edmonton, but covered Saskatchewan, called Saskatchewan Sage, which mm. was uh, uh, published by the Alberta uh, uh, Alberta uh, Aboriginal Multimedia Society, AMSA, oh, yeah. which also publishes Windspeaker. Right, and then my. I've always been really good at photography thanks to my dad and I just transitioned into journalism.
0: Hmm.
2: And it was a it was actually you know becoming a journalist for all those years. So I was a journalist for about 15 years in total. Yep. Like it really got me to truly understand some stronger you know what is really essential in storytelling. How do we and then speaking to people and meeting people in adverse situations mm. i like to tell people about being a journalist is that oftentimes you're meeting people like either the best day of their lives or the worst day of their lives
0: mm.
2: and it sort of shows their character mm. and um that was really important to me and i loved being a journalist mm. um, but 2006 rolled around i turned 40 and i hadn't hadn't really done much with my with my 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 dreams of being a playwright. And I was mm. going, okay, you know, I either do it now. Right. Or you just, you know, as good as I was as a journalist, it wasn't passionate for me. It wasn't something I really right. wanted to wake up every morning to do. It was turning into right. a job. Right. <laughs> right. So it's yes. like, I don't want this to be a job. I don't want that. So I pulled the shoot. I jumped. Mm. I left uh, APTN. Mm. Uh, like with nothing in front of me, I just quit. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm going to be a playwright. I also said, I was going to work in TV and film. Right. Uh, so, right. The, the stuff we learned at, at APTN, like uh, I went and started, I was a, I became a digital video editor for a small production company in Saskatoon for a couple of years afterwards. Mm-hmm. So, and then 2008 happened and everything just started to like take off. Mm-hmm. Um, Thunderstick got, re- like Thunderstick had a production in 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. And the one in Toronto, 2001, if you can still find reviews of it, is it, it's just, absolutely just, horrifyingly bad mm. reviews and reaction mm. to it mm. um, but when it was sort of redone in 2008 exact same script yep um, with Lauren Cardinal and, and Craig Lozon right. in the lead roles it blew up it, it became a massive massive hit which led to me becoming you know taken more seriously now and then you know Cafe Daughter came out uh, and it's been touring it's had three separate productions it's toured across Canada it's been to Europe. We're now in the process of, uh, you know, making a movie out of it. Great. Uh, with Shelley Nero. Nice. Um, and then um, uh, Three Little Birds came out. Uh, that did very, very well. Bannock Republic, you know, I had to write the, the sequels to, mm. to to Thunderstick. And then another play called Gordon Winter came along. And, you know, I wrote. And that also did very, very well. It played at the National Art Center. Um, and so my career just to, just... Just took off, uh, you know, after 2008, it sort of steadily increased. And then out of the blue, I get this phone call from my alma mater, the University of Alberta, and they say, do you want a job? And I went, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> doing what? <laughs> so we want you to be a professor. And I said, OK, I can do that. I can be a drama professor. So I'm the first Indigenous hire at the drama department here at the University of Alberta. So.
0: Congratulations. That's great. And, and how yeah. long have you been so, doing that gig now? Four years. I've been at it for four years. Congratulations, Ken. That's great. Glad to hear it. Um, Now you, you mentioned Thunderstick and I have to, you also mentioned Lauren Cardinal. I have to say that, and I don't know if you had any people in mind when you were writing these characters, but I could just see Lauren in this character. I just see him saying these lines.
2: Yeah. What happened too, was really kind of funny was, um, again, fortuitous timing, uh, the original corner guests TV mm. series would come to an end. Right. Um, and Craig, who was on uh, real Canadian air force, mm-hmm. that show, you know, it, it, it came back, but that show got canceled mm. for a uh, brief time. Mm-hmm. And so these, and they were working on, we were, we, oh, we were all gathered together um, working on the workshop of Gordon winter in Toronto. Mm.
0: And we we're just hanging
2: out and, and, and Lauren, and Craig says to Lauren, "You know what? I think we should work together on something." And uh, Lauren kind of looks at him with the, you know, sort of winking at me. He goes, "I think I have a script." <laughs> so they had something, they had nothing to do really. Right? Um, and so uh, they looked at Thunderstick. And you're you know you're t- saying how you know you can see Lauren saying yeah, Jacob's yeah. lines. Well, they both saw themselves as saying Jacob's lines. Yeah. <laughs> so, they that, so they were like, I want to be Jacob. Well, I want to be Jacob. We both, we both can't be Jacob. And then suddenly they went, or can we? So the big shift, and this is, as far as we can tell, has, well, it's never been done in Indigenous theatre uh, in Canada, and we're pretty sure it hasn't been done in any other show in Canada, but they decided right then and there that they're going to do the play, but they're going to switch Roles, characters. Ah, Yes, switch roles. Nice. Each performance, so that nice. they both get a chance to be Jacob, and then they both get to be Isaac. Cool. Um, Isaac, who's the straight man. That's why yeah, they yeah, he's straight. Right, man, right, right. He's, he's the he's the brunt of the jokes. Right. Um. So that's you know that that's why the, that production did so well. They mm. just they there were magic in it. Yeah. And also, I got to admit too, the, the Lauren is. Like, Lauren and I have been friends for years. We mm-hmm. met because of rugby. I was a bartender at a rugby club okay. uh, in Edmonton. And he was playing rugby. And he, at the time, he had his braids on. And I was like, mm. who's this crazy guy playing rugby with braids? Like, right. he's the only one. <laughs> right. And we got to be buddies. And huh. then we met again in university in drama. And went, oh, hey. And he's a fantastic actor. Yeah, um, for sure. He's an amazing actor. He is. And he worked on... He worked on every single production of Thunderstick in one way or another, mm. either as a director, <laughs> either as an actor or in the workshop, he led the workshop. Mm. And, um, and like, he's like, like I have to, I give, I, you know, he's a lot of the reason why my career took off mm. because he had a lot of faith in that script and right. he really wanted to do that script justice. Huh. And so I, I owe him a huge amount of thanks Right in, in how, you know, he just, believed in that script and wanted it to soar. And, yeah. you know, him and then meeting up with Craig and him and yeah. Craig just actually falling in love
0: with it. So. Yeah. So I appreciate that. And and wonderful to hear that camaraderie and the history that you guys have together. Now, the other thing I want to ask you about this, the sense of humor, the sharp wit that you bring to your characters, where does that come from?
2: No idea. <laughs> <have> no idea. <laughs> I'm a bit of a wise-ass, as you know. I, I got <laughs> into a little bit of trouble as an APTN correspondent when... Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one time I, I referred to, well, this was during the Mi'kmaq Lobster War, and I referred mm. to Ujjal Dasar, and she was then Minister of Fisheries. That's the boss of fish. I said it on the air. Um, and <laughs> I know I got a rep- <laughs> not a reprimand, not, nothing as serious as right, that, but right. I did get a phone call right. so saying you can't do that. Right. <laughs> you know, so I think this was another reason why I had to get out of journalism is because I was uh, getting tired of quoting liars and mm. not being able to rebuke what they said, especially mm. like Government people, yep. like they just you know could lie straight to your face or spin sure straight to your face, and you had no ammunition to fight back. Yep. but you knew what they're saying wasn't true. Yes, the other side
0: of things yeah. is like you said. Sometimes you see people on their best day or their worst day, and sometimes you're you're getting people on these. In, and in many situations, First Nation stories are not happy stories anyway.
2: Oh mm-hmm. yeah, very much so. Especially when you know. Uh, at the same time, you know I got we you know what we were part of there. You know, was important. Yeah. Um and I, and, I, and we can see now how just how APCAM punches above its weight in yep. news and everything else like sure that. Does. Yeah. Um thanks largely to our colleague, you know, uh Karen Pouillet yeah, who, bet. who <laughs> ran the shop for several many years. Yep. And I think really lifted it up. Yep. Um uh that it was important to tell a lot of those stories. And and when we did hit something really, really big, I like I remember Cheryl uh um cheryl's story about the mesothelioma and the, the amount of time she was given to develop those stories about the housing mm. uh, you know mes- you know mesothelioma is a is a is a type of cancer that almost is almost the only way you can get it is through exposures to asbestos mm. and she broke that story mm-hmm. and got a chance to dig into it and you know dig deep and really show us something. And, you mm-hmm. know, now she's running the show. She's yeah, right. running APTN news, <laughs> right. right? So That's right. Um, congrats to her and <laughs> That's you know, right. that kind of determination. But yeah. um, at the same time, but, you know, it, it, for me, I, I started seeing myself, especially when I was in Saskatoon where I ended, where I, where I, my last posting was for APTN, I started seeing myself going, I'm going to the next body. I'm mm-hmm. going to the next mm-hmm. missing person. I'm going yeah. to the next yeah you know, story about that. And I, I, and I'm only given a certain amount of time to tell it and I'm I'm getting physically, I'm getting physically sick and Mm -hmm. emotionally distressed about this. I can't do my job because if I I have to turn it to one of those journalists, I really hate, which is someone who can shut it off, right. Turns, turns off their emotions to tell the story and becomes a different kind of animal. And I was like, I'm not ready to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that as well because uh, hats off to those journalists that can, uh, can do those stories and on a continuous basis because we need them and we are yes. very grateful for them to be able yeah. to do that. Yeah, Ken, it's been great talking to you. Now the uh, the play, the Fringe Festival, as I say, runs from from July twenty first to the thirty first. And if mm-hmm. I'm correct, this is a virtual event. Is it? Is it?
2: Yes, this is this has been pre recorded. It was pre recorded in the CIT in the Center of Indigenous Theater. Their yep. their little theater there, uh, directed by Ed Roy, um, and it's on demand. So you you. The, you, there is a ticket for it right. or a pass or something like that. I can't remember specifically. And then you can just watch it uh, yeah. during that time. So it's right. limited the amount of time it's offered. In
0: right. The- you can go to Fringetoronto.com to find out more about getting tickets if you go to their website. And uh, then you can you can actually just uh, scroll down and find out about when the streaming starts and about getting tickets. So if you go to uh, Fringetoronto.com, that's where you can find out more about this. And it's been a pleasure talking with Ken about his play, Bannock Republic, which is the play that is on at the Fringe Festival. And also to hear about uh, all your success, Ken. That's great. I'm so uh, happy for you. You. Congratulations hey, to thanks, man. for you on all these fronts, and it's uh, it's so nice to talk with you. All, you know, after all these years, the other thing I want to mention to you is uh, I recently uh, interviewed uh, Drew Taylor on his new yes. uh, APTN series that he's got running, and of course saw you in there on one of the episodes <laughs> with him, <laughs> and you guys looked like you were having a great time together. Oh, we were, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> uh, we were actually, you know, one of the things I'm celebrating, uh, not me personally, but I'm in my in this the field I'm in is that indigenous theater is very, very Mm. healthy. It's thriving and it's growing. One of the jokes, I don't know if he kept it, but one of the things we were joking about was at one time, many years ago when Drew and I were younger, you know, he and I could sit down with two or three other people and we would know what every single Canadian indigenous theater artist was doing Mm. (laughs) at any given time, because just the network was that small. Sure. Sure. And that, Nowadays, you know it's beautiful that there are, there are people whose names pop up and go, I don't know who that person is and I'm, and I like that fact. I like the fact that there are people out there I haven't met yet, yeah young people, a lot of young, really talented people coming in that just you know I'm very, very excited. it's kind of yeah. like uh it's good to see that much expansion it, yeah it's good to see. These new ideas, these new faces, and, you know, mm-hmm. again, uh, celebrating uh, the fact that we got another Governor General's Award winner yeah. in, the, in the English drama uh, mm-hmm. section with uh, Lupa, written by uh, Kim Sutcliffe Suckab- Harvey out of, uh, out of Vancouver. So, go us. We're doing great.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, for, for you at the university, uh, are you seeing a, a greater influx of Indigenous students uh, coming in either through the drama area and or through uh, maybe playwriting or, or any other area?
2: Uh, well, it, Indigenous students are growing, and particularly it's in, uh, it's uh, women who mm. are coming in. Mm. Uh, we're seeing a lot of Indigenous women uh, coming to university. Good. In terms of in, in terms of drama, um, not as much yet. But I, you know, I just got there, so yeah. I still yeah. gotta start start sowing those seeds and getting right. people up and you know getting them interested in taking drama with right, us at right, U of right. A. So. Yeah, yeah, cool. <laughs> Ken, such
0: a pleasure to touch base with you and uh, just say hi I'm after here. all these years. And um, yeah. congratulations. I can't wait to see the film. Uh, you know, you say you've got a film coming out, too. So that's great. Congratulations yeah. on that front.
2: Cool. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's, everything got stalled because of COVID, but you know, yeah. things should be back up on their feet. So. All
0: right. All right, Ken. Well, listen, yeah, take care. All the best. And again, uh, Chimi Gwetch and yao goa for taking the time to join us on the show. Ken Williams, and he is the uh, author-playwright of Bannock Republic, which you can see at the Toronto Fringe Festival. It is on from July 21st to the 31st. Go to fringetoronto.com. You can find out more about getting tickets. It's a virtual event, so go there to find out more. All right, don't go away. We're going to be right back with more here on Moment of Truth and Element FM right after this.
2: Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element.
1: Element. Element
0: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And we would also like to welcome listeners on other radio stations that are now carrying Moment of Truth. We welcome you to the show as well. You can also listen online on our SoundCloud or on your favorite podcast platform. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show today, Margot Hurlbert, And she is the Canadian Research Chair for Climate Change, Energy and Sustainability at the University of Regina. And a little bit more about her, she has a Bachelor of Administration, a Law Degree and Masters of Law in Constitutional Law and in particular in Indigenous or Aboriginal Rights Energy and Water. And she has a PhD in Social and Behavioral Sciences with Expertise in climate change, risk, vulnerability, drought, flood and Adaptive Governance. And she was the coordinating lead author of Chapter 7 of the IPCC Land and Climate Report of 2019 and a contributing author and review editor of the IPCC AR6. She is a professor at Johnson-Shoyamath Graduate School of Public Policy. Margo, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. We're going to be talking, in part, the conversation is starting around an article that you wrote in the conversation. It was called The Paris Agreement at Five Times Running Out, How Do We Get the World Back on Track to Meet Its Climate Goals? So welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And Margot, you know, when you did write that article, it's going back to December. But, you know, a lot has happened since then. And I'm sure you can bring us up to date on some of those things that have, have changed since that time. In particular, uh, the election south of the border. We now have uh, President Biden in the House. So he is is now sworn in. You do actually start your article talking about COVID-19 and how it has dramatically changed our lives. The first thing that that went through my mind, not that COVID-19 wasn't a big deal and we shouldn't be concerned about it or we shouldn't be thinking about it. But as far as the world went, I thought, what a great time for businesses to retool. If they had a chance to, uh, you know, change things over to maybe to become more greener and plan for the future, I thought this was an ideal time because everything was shut down.
1: Yeah, that's a really good uh, point, David. And we have learned things through COVID-19 and the shutdown. So one thing we've learned is cutting out some of the transportation and uh, um, co-travelling to Mm. work is a great way to reduce emissions, but it's also not going to be enough. But it's taught us some things about how we can change our work-life uh, balance and our, our occupations to be, to be greener. So we're kind of learning, as you said, how to build back our economy greener and better.
0: And are you hearing signs of that? Have you heard rumblings uh, from either business or government or, or uh, other people you might be talking to that, that are looking in that regard, that are actually taking that serious?
1: Oh, absolutely. So mm, much of the federal government's programs have centered on that concept, on making sure that they are incentivizing our economy to reboot, but also to reboot greener and, and better. So much of the funds that came out to Western Canada in relation to oil and gas were actually for the purposes of sealing uh, sealing oil and gas mining mm. operations that hadn't been properly sealed in the past. So instead of rebooting an oil and gas economy out here in the West, just for bigger, better, more production, it was actually an environmentally tasked initiative to actually close some of our oil and gas mines and wells.
0: Okay, well, that's another point you just brought up. Uh, I'm, uh, do you have anything to say around that whole pipeline issue that we now know is, is a done deal? It's not happening if Joe Biden pulled the plug on it.
1: He has. And, and you started mentioning the elections out of the, of the mm-hmm. border. He actually has issued an executive order in the context of addressing climate change that is really, really exciting. And cancelling the Keystone was an election promise. So it came as no surprise to me and I assume anybody else watching the American election and some of the promises being made by Biden that that initiative was taken because it basically was a promise to the people that were electing Mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. And he's followed through on climate change, having issued this executive order on tackling the climate crisis at home and abroad that came out on January 27th, 2021. Uh, And it's got many parts to it and brings out uh, Biden's particular take on addressing climate change into the future.
0: And there again, he also said he was going to uh, rejoin the Paris Agreement, which I believe that's one of the first things he did as well, is get that uh, flowing. How do you think if they had not have joined, rejoined that Paris Agreement, how it might have impacted things?
1: Yes, it actually, on a couple fronts, is good. It's good for the global order around the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change to have such a significant country as the United States. States with significant greenhouse gas emissions and significant population and population growth to be now uh, a, a member of the the accord, the Paris Agreement. So that's actually really good news. It's also good news for Canada, so that we know that all of our policies addressing climate change aren't going to be aren't going to be causing as Many issues for trade going from Canada to the United States, as uh, could have been if we didn't have an administration down in the United States taking climate change and the implicit price of carbon seriously.
0: Right. Nicely said. Now, going back to the top, you talked about COVID, how it changes our life and and, uh, bigger lifestyle and technology changes that need to be made.
1: Yeah, so we've only, with COVID and uh, us lucky people that are able to work at home here, we've only addressed one particular aspect around transportation and commuting in relation to greenhouse gas emissions. And, and it's important. Uh, and it's not one of the classic low-hanging fruit around addressing climate change uh, but it's an important one and it makes us think about what we're going to have to do to address climate change and achieve net zero emissions by 2050. And this is a goal that has been adopted by the government of Canada and actually many countries around the world as their stretch goal or their long-term goal mm. in order to align with the climate change scenarios and the information coming out of the intergovernmental panel on climate change uh, in relation to what we need to do to address greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Right. Right. And that window, as you point out, is getting narrower and narrower, narrower very quickly.
1: Yes, it is. So it depends um, which source we're looking at. But there's some very credible sources, including the IPCC, that are measuring uh, carbon in our atmosphere and setting a, a total total measure of that carbon in gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent for what we need to achieve our goals of maintaining warming below two degrees Celsius and striving towards 1.5 degrees Celsius. And the, the carbon budget or how much we have left that we can emit of carbon before we arrive at that point is actually Anywhere between some people, some studies are saying uh, around the year of uh, 2028 mm. and others uh, slightly after that. So it's that window is closing, but there's still opportunity.
0: And, and I also heard something about the carbon in the atmosphere, even if we reduce it or stop it, it's still going to accumulate or it's still increase the, 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 the temperature of the planet
1: yeah that's a really good uh, observation David is we're talking about the the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and our trajectory uh, even when you think about it we're talking about net zero by 2050 where mm-hmm. we stop emitting greenhouse gases and then what I just said is well actually our carbon budget for 1.5 to two is going to end based on our Trajectory around the year of 2028. So that's actually uh, 22 years ahead mm-hmm. of 2050. So we're on a path to overshoot that carbon budget and thus overshoot the two degrees Mm. approaching 1.5 degrees Celsius. So what we need to do and what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is talking about is we're going to need some negative emission technologies where we're actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere.
0: And I am glad you mentioned that because I have of late been speaking to several people on how to work with this carbon uh, negative footprint or how to how, how can we, we can start approaching the climate crisis that we are finding ourselves in. And I have been pleasantly surprised to find that there are a number of things out there that I had no idea about uh, a year ago that I, I see that can help. Uh you know very simple things that people can do the more we can grow that is more a natural kind of thing, it actually helps to pull that carbon back into the earth where it can where it ne- needs to be and can help uh help actually the planet and help us grow things better.
1: That's absolutely right, and so the low hanging fruit to address carbon change we all talk about we need more solar, we need more wind energy, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. We all know that, and it's absolutely true we can't lose focus on it. But then what we don't talk about a lot is agriculture. Mm. And so the IPCC, I was on the Land and Climate Report that came out in 2019. And this is a special report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it was talking about exactly what you're talking about, David. It's about the fact negative emission technology, it sounds daunting mm-hmm. and it truly is in some Uh, applications technology, but it's actually way more than that. It's including the planting trees and converting uh, biomass, uh, which is like natural production from our land, organic material, converting it into certain substances so that we can protect our soil and protect the, the health of our soil and make it, Uh, better for agriculture in a way. So there's a whole bunch of things that we can do in agriculture, which includes these best management practices that increase the soil organic carbon, reduce soil erosion and salinization and make uh, agriculture resilient. So perennials, uh, perennial crops are actually something that are really being studied. We already know in agriculture that certain certain Growing different crops in different years or beside one another have many, many co-benefits in maintaining our soil health and continuing to store carbon in the soil. So there's a whole bunch of very natural things uh, that we can do in order to have land act as a carbon sink.
0: You know, as you were talking about agriculture, it made me think of this, that you are involved with uh, some of these Indigenous and and Aboriginal rights, which I think about in terms of the Indigenous people and how they, and still do, have a very, uh, very close, uh, pay close attention to the natural environment and working with it, not against it.
1: Yeah, that's a a really, really great observation. And... Uh, even our current Prime Minister, in the when addressing the Conference of the Parties, mentioned that there's so much we could learn about addressing climate change from Indigenous knowledge and paying close attention to it. Uh, and for sure, that's the case, especially when we think about our forests and our grasslands and the traditional lifestyles. That the First Nations people have maintained for centuries mm-hmm. on this land, and learning from them some of these best practices um, with respect to cattle and manure. That's really an interesting observation. And here in Saskatchewan and Alberta, there's there has been a lot of land that was converted to farming and dry land agriculture, uh, mistakenly so, and perhaps due to policies, provincial and federal, that incented it and that land should have never been turned mm. into agriculture. So it's been converted back into grasslands and pasture lands for, for cattle. So our land and climate reports stated that we need to eat less meat because it's so very right. carbon intensive in right. production. Um, But the cattle still provide a really important resource on that grassland and maintaining the health of some of our grasslands out here and keeping that land productive and not being converted into some sort of agriculture that would be less beneficial in the very, very dry areas. Uh, here, So I, I wanted to mention that and also the idea uh, in Manitoba and Alberta, they actually incentivize the production of energy from cattle manure, which is a really fascinating idea of thinking about how to, instead of letting that manure uh, go into the air and methane, which is a very highly impactful greenhouse gas to actually repurpose it into energy. So there's some really exciting things that are happening uh, in that area and with the idea that we're living in an interconnected system and this brings it back to your comments about uh, Indigenous and First Nations people who have really understood uh, since time immemorial that we are living in this or system together and need to be respectful of it.
0: Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app. We'd also like to welcome listeners on other radio stations that are now carrying Moment of Truth, and you can also listen on your favorite podcast platform. My guest here on the show is Margot Herlbert, and she is a Canadian Research Chair for Climate Change, Energy and Sustainability at the University of Regina. And we are talking about, so we started to talk about her article that was in the conversation, The Paris Agreement at Five, Times Running Out, How to Get the World Back on Track to Meet Its Climate Goals. So it's a pleasure to have Margot on the show. And Margot, as we as we now are trying to look to deal with COVID-19, but also think about our climate as we move forward, trying to get moving out of this and find a better way to uh, deal with the climate, to make sure that we don't hit those marks that you have been talking about and, and get things back on track. We've talked about transportation, we've talked about agriculture. It isn't a single issue it's 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 there isn't just one answer to this there's a whole lot of things that have to come into place and we all have to work at it you know that reminds me again about an author i had on talking about this and it was about what if what if solving the climate crisis was simple <laughs> and i thought yeah right and it wasn't necessarily around how it was solving it It was around our mind getting around it in terms of making it simple for us because it it seems like such a big issue. How can any of us do anything about it? We're talking about the globe. We're talking about the world. And we feel so helpless to change it on on an individual level. But, you know, what he was saying is, how about if we just start by thinking about it differently? And that is to say, okay, here's our goal. By 2050, you know, we have to hit this mark, and we cannot fail, and that is to be uh, to be a zero emission. We have to be zero emission. So if we start looking at that, and then, you know, go backwards from there, and start taking it down, and and there are many things that we all have to work towards. The You know, there is government policy and those kind of things that have to happen, the government, but we all have to do our own little part, and, and that's one of the ways he was talking about let's make this small enough for each of us to understand it and be able to start to move forward and be able to take some action on our own front so that we can work towards that goal.
1: Yeah, thanks for that, David. And it's a really great observation because uh, what we do as individuals is so important. And I think oftentimes we are overwhelmed with the scope of this issue, because it is so complex. But there's so many things we do every day with our decisions around transportation, the food that we eat and that we're purchasing, and Mm. even the food that we waste, that makes such a difference in the context of greenhouse gases. So about Twenty five percent of food is wasted. And that's a huge number when you think about all the greenhouse gases that go into producing and transporting that food. So Mm. even just reducing food waste waste, which is, you know, something I don't know if you're my age which is really old. My mother used to always say, don't waste your food. There's people starving in other areas of the world, which Mm. meant nothing to me. But it actually has global consequence in in the whole area of greenhouse gases and distribution uh, that are so important now to think about. So I hate to say that my mother was right.
0: Mm. Well, don't we all uh, look back at our parents and and mothers and and think about the things that they told us? Mm. True, Very true. I, I want to ask you one more thing though, and, and it ties in with something that was in your article which I wasn't familiar with, and it had, to, it had to do with the planting idea and using biochar, a charcoal-like substance, to store carbon in agricultural soils, capturing carbon directly from the atmosphere, burning organic materials such as switchgrass and lolly no, lo, lolly pine.
1: Yeah, isn't that funny? So this kind of, of, I'm going to start with it as individual actions and our choices around food Mm. is, you know, if we are buying our food local, then we know how it's being grown and what its impact is in relation to our environment and greenhouse gases, even in relation to the transport of food. So buying local and organic is really good. And then when we start to actually understand how food is grown, and ask questions around mm, what kind of chemicals have been used in its processing mm. we can start to delve deeper into what our food and its greenhouse gas let's call it footprint might be so there's some really cool things around that haven't that haven't been taken up by agriculture and these are solutions that That contribute to solving this climate change crisis. So this biochar uh, Mm. material, I found a textbook somebody was throwing away and it was like 10, 15 years old, an (laughs) engineering textbook on a complete textbook on this biochar mm. and basically it's like this charcoal like substance that you make by burning organic material in a controlled process and it's got a whole bunch of applications i was watching a university of saskatchewan uh, research presentation on this biochar and they have a whole team of like 30 researchers you know i'd die and go to heaven if i had a research team like that <laughs> looking at biochar because mm. when you when you do this process, capture it, and you put it into soil, it's actually one of these negative emission technologies that we've been talking about. Mm. But you, and even myself, prior to getting involved in writing the Land and Climate Report, I didn't know about it. And I've, I've lived, I grew up in Saskatchewan, and farming's in the family, right? So never heard of it. So mm. there are these these in innovations, that exist out there but just haven't been uh, commercialized. Yeah. So biochar, it's like a form of fertilizer. Mm. And as you know, some of our fertilizers are contributing to our greenhouse gas mm. emissions. So thinking about, well, what policy instruments might actually um Move these along. So, the really cool one in in the land and climate you mentioned is the whole idea of bioenergy carbon capture sequestration. So, as you know, in Saskatchewan, we had the first first post um, coal combustion CCS plant here in Saskatchewan. And Alberta has also now, uh, by leaps and bounds, uh, developed their carbon capture sequestration. So, this is the technology of direct air capture. So we have a, a installation called AquaStore and we take carbon out of our, our coal-fired plant, boundary down three, and we put it very deep into the earth where it's stored and we monitor it, we verify and report that it's staying down there. So this is, this is taking coal and making it Clean. Hmm. Now we still shudder at that, but it, hmm. it was actually an important innovation. If we were to convert that coal plant into a plant that could burn pellets from forests, hmm. then we would actually be taking. Uh, what has been a carbon sink, a forest, would be using it for energy, but instead of releasing it into the atmosphere like a forest fire would, would take the carbon out of it and we would be able to store it underground in these great caverns uh, that our aquastore project monitors and looks like looks at this this type of uh, technology also exists in my neighboring province, Alberta. So it's not it's not unique uh, to Saskatchewan anymore. And then the switchgrass and lobloli Lebol- pine. The yeah. reason I've mentioned it is in the land and climate report, it was identified that you can't expect to just burn any biomass and have it. Take uh, carbon out of the atmosphere and in the whole supply chain, but those two particular uh, particular plants are proven. There is scientific wow. literature that documents that they could produce en- energy, capture CO two, and then be sequestered.
0: Wow! There, you know, it's amazing. Na- nature has all the answers if we pay enough attention. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Well, we're almost out of time, but Margot, I want to find out about, you know, a couple of other things quickly, if that's okay. Um, business is changing. Is it changing fast enough? Is it changing enough? Are we, are we, Are you seeing those kind of adaptations or mind changes in the people that are running these businesses that are willing to make these changes to go forward?
1: Yes and no. There's a lot of cause for optimism. So Mark Carney, our uh, ex-Bank of Canada governor, uh, went to England and was the governor there. And he's now gotten very involved in financial disclosure around climate change and having companies disclose their plans to address climate change and move along the pathway to two degrees, approaching 1.5 degrees. Mm. So companies that are listed on stock stock exchanges are very much engaged. I also work with uh, Future Earth and mm-hmm. they uh, support targets that companies like Coca-Cola, Senivas, uh, mm-hmm. they adopt in order to try and ensure that their organizations are being sustainable. So it's informed by the scientific community of Future Earth, which is a huge uh, scientific community of social scientists like myself and climate modelers. Mm. We've made a whole bunch of progress in uh, ESG reporting around companies. But I do a lot of research around the net zero by 2050 with companies and and still a little... um, a little chagrined at our lack of imagination, our Mm. lack of ability as people and as companies to imagine that 2050 that you were talking about so eloquently, David, imagine what we need to do today, because it's only 29 years away. And so when I was working in industry, we built infrastructure for 25 years. So we need to be thinking about it now, because we've only got 29 years. But we also know that even though we build for 25 years, our infrastructure usually lasts for way more years, our buildings, our roads, Mm. etc. So, it's really something we all have to get together and build that imaginary for net zero by 2050.
0: All right. Margot, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been fascinating speaking with you. I look forward to touching base with you again. It would be great to uh, talk further, maybe once we're further into this year or as we approach uh, 2022 to see how things are going. It would be great to catch up with you at that point.
1: That would be great. I look forward to it.
0: All right. Thank you so much for being on the show. Okay, bye. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. And that is Margot Hilbert, and she is a Canada Research Chair for Climate Change, Energy, and Sustainability at the University of Regina. She's been talking to us about her uh, paper that she wrote in the conversation entitled "The Paris Agreement." And at five, time is running out. How do we get the world back on track to meet its climate goals? It's been a pleasure to have her on the show. All right, that is our show for today. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow, right here on Moment of Truth.